Uh, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met. Thanks for joining us. And we're in a series called The Cruciform Life, A Life Shaped by the Cross. We're, we're going way too, I know this, we're going and we're going to do it again this morning. We're going way too quickly through 2 Corinthians. It's a long letter. If We could really talk about everything if I did about five verses a week, but then we would be in 2 Corinthians forever. <laughs> Um, so we do too big a chunks, and I don't get to talk about everything. But it just hopefully gives you enough of an understanding of the letter, a familiarity with it, and maybe of a curiosity. Oh, I didn't know that was in there. <laughs> uh, even today, I hope even at some of the stuff we talk about, it'll make you curious to spend a little bit more time, because uh, as I'll talk about, this passage is uniquely important to me. The series is on the cruciform life. Last week we talked about the weakness, the scandal, the folly of the cross, and we'll do more of that again next week. That's the theme, but our, our text is just, even as we sang this morning, maybe you already felt it, we're going to just lock in on Jesus. We're going to lock in on Jesus. So not just the cross per se, but the one on the cross. That's who we're going to focus in on. But before we get into the text and get into Paul, what he's talking about with the old and the new, let me, let me give a little context. First, I want to set up this morning, and I was thinking about this, and it's even fitting to what Paul is going to do a little bit. Uh, many of us have, maybe all of us, or if you're newer to the church or Christianity and you're just exploring things, if you go on this Jesus journey, which we invite you to go on with us, uh, you, you may end up finding that you have a hall of fame of Bible verses. A hall of fame. I, I have a hall of fame, and I, there are almost two, two different hall of fames, but they kind of go together. The first hall of fame is just your, your personal hall of fame. You've been walking with God, and, and there have been times when you've needed to repent, rethink things. You've learned things in your family of origin or just living in what we call modern-day Babylon, and you, need to re- you know you need to rethink things. And, and, and in moments of deep need in your life, the Spirit of God has just directed you. Maybe, maybe you've gone to church and you've heard a sermon or you've just in your own devotional time or a friend pointed you to a Bible verse that was exactly what you needed. Personal hall of fame. Or, or you're in a, dis- a place of despair and you need hope and you need encouragement and you need comfort. And so I, I, have, I have. I have Bible verses I could take time. I mean, this should be good news to you since I'm a pastor, but I got a personal hall of fame a verse after verse that God has used uniquely in my life. I also have a theological hall of fame. I think more of us have this than we're aware of. I thought I'd even just mention this because I think it reinforces a little bit of what I love about our denomination. We're a part of the EFCA. And one of the distinctives of the EFCA is that we like to say we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. So what that means is you can read through, I mean, you could read through the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene's Creed, but, but for our denomination, we have a statement of faith. I really enjoy our statement of faith. That's one of the reasons I'm in our denomination. You can get it in the hallway or online. If you want to know what we think the majors are, the non-negotiables, like this, the Bible is as clear as clear as clear, the majors. It's in our statement of faith. But there's a whole lot of things that the church has kind of not fully agreed on throughout 2,000 years. We call those minors. We, there's, they're important, but we, but we have humility in how we discuss them because we know we may read the Bible one way with some of these, and other brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe or throughout history but have biblical reasons for viewing it differently. One classic example is baptism. Some churches only baptize infants. Other churches only baptize people who are old enough to profess faith in Jesus, and we just with humility 
oh, I understand you have a biblical reason for that. I have a different biblical argument, but this is one of those minor issues that we will hold with humility. So we have a theological hall of fame that becomes like, for those of us who get a little bit deeper in theology, these minor issues, you view them through whatever verses you're emphasizing. <laughs> there's, in other words, there's certain verses that in these arguments or these conversations amongst Christians, this verse means so much for me, even though I understand what you're saying with this verse, I still, this verse gets priority. And you understand what I'm saying? It's just how we operate as we navigate these things. And I share all that to say this morning, uh, two of the verses that are going to pop in our text are both personally and theologically in my Hall of Fame. (laughs) And it won't surprise you when we read them, actually. If you've been a part of Crossview at all, you'll be like, well, uh, of course that's in Jeff's Hall of Fame. Very, very. And and honestly, they probably weren't in my Hall of Fame prior to about seven or eight years ago. I went to prayer school. I've talked a lot about prayer school, and it kind of, I mean, it's exactly what my soul needed at that time. I was pretty depleted. And I went on what, what, it's what I call a Jesus journey because I don't know what else to call it. I already knew Christ, but, but something happened in my relationship with him where I've, I keep telling you this and it's true, I've never been more excited about Jesus than I am right now. <laughs> There's something about Jesus that is so compelling and so beautiful and I hope you get a little feel of that. I hope you get, get to experience a little bit of him this morning as we gather together. So we're going to talk about Jesus, invite you a little bit on my Jesus journey. I'll point out these verses and we'll end with them. And I'm going to do a little, I'll just call it a prayer school practice at the end. We're going to do a little bit longer time of prayer at the end of the sermon. But into the text, we're entering into the middle of a fight. If you haven't been with us in this series, Paul is kind of in an argument with the church in Corinth. And if you've ever walked into the kitchen and two relatives are arguing and you don't know what they're arguing about or why it started, you just know they're arguing. That's a bit of what happens when we pick up 2 Corinthians. Paul is defending his apostleship. Again, we talked more about this last week and we will again next week. The Corinthians have some other people who have come from the outside who are happy to point out the weakness of Paul and his ministry and the nature of his ministry, his apostleship, and their own strengths. We'll get into this very strongly at the end of the letter. And so Paul is defending the weakness of his gospel because of the power of the Spirit present. He has no problem with his weakness because for him, Jesus on the cross is the most beautiful thing you could ever imagine. And he will not budge on that for Paul. So he's defending his gospel, and he's also trying to correct some of these opponents who have come from, I think, I think, we're we're kind of guessing a little bit, but they've come from the outside of the church, and they're challenging Paul, and and they're kind of leading the church astray a little bit, and then Paul... Paul is really challenging that. And so one of the things, as, as the letter unfolds, it seems, is that they, these false teachers who have come into Corinth are, they're, they're emphasizing, if, if their hall of fame of scripture would be filled with a lot of Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff. And so what Paul is going to do is try to, try to challenge some of that and correct some of that. Where should our emphasis lie in light of Jesus? So we'll pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Again, we're like mid this like long tangent that began 
in chapter 2 and is going to run all the way to chapter 7. Paul says the old way, and you can even just, the old covenant, you can imagine the tablets and the Ten Commandments with Moses. The the old way with laws etched in stone led to death. I'm going to read through this because you've got to hear everything he's saying. But it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. That's, he's, he's reflecting on a story we'll talk about. His face, Moses' face, shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, this new covenant, this new thing happening in Jesus, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? And again, Paul, my, I know my ministry looks weak. I'm following a crucified Messiah, but the Spirit of God has come. (laughs) And the Spirit is all the power you'll ever need, right? He gives life. If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, and it's interesting if you're paying attention to what Paul's doing here, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which had, has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? It's one of the things that, you, if, you, if you read Paul closely through his letters to the churches, Paul will never put the old covenant down. He will, never, he will always view the gifts that God gave his people, Israel, as, as beautiful, as good. It's still, you see, it's still glorious. Moses was talking with the one and only true living God, the creator of all things. Paul will not ever put it down. He's just going to put it into a new perspective and say, but what is what we now know in Jesus? (laughs) Oh, what we now know in Jesus is so much better. Let's keep reading. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. And and again, he's leaning into this relationship with God. We have boldness. We have confidence. We have hope. We have freedom. What do we say sometimes here at Crossview? When you get to know Jesus and the kind of relationship that the one true God is inviting you into, you find out that in the presence of God, because of who God has revealed himself to be through Jesus on the cross, you and I have nothing to hide. We have nothing to fear. And I want you to think about being in a relationship like this. You no longer have anything to prove. You don't have to organize your life around pleasing anyone. You just have confidence and boldness and freedom to enter into the very presence of God himself. The safest person you will ever know. The most trustworthy. I mean, he he says he's gentle. He's powerful. He's gentle. And that's who God is. He says, verse 13, we are not like Moses who put a veil over his face. And we're gonna, the veil is what we're going to hone in on. So the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away or come to an end. Because the old covenant and the new covenant don't exist side by side. Jesus has completed the old covenant, so something radically new is happening. Verse 14, this is really the issue for Paul and for Moses. The problem was the people's minds or the people's hearts were hardened. That's the problem. That was the problem from the beginning. Their, their, Their hearts were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. 
And this veil can be removed only by believing in Jesus Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. In other words, there is a moment for all Christians. And if you're new, if you're visiting, if you're exploring Christianity, there is a moment where you have a clarity of mind, a sense of your own hard-heartedness, your own sin, your own brokenness, your own rebellion against God, the ways that you have messed yourself up and messed other people up, and you look at yourself and you say, I can't fix this. It's like breaking a stained glass window into a million shards of glass and realizing I could never glue this thing back together. (laughs) I need somebody to help And you really enter the Christian life, this amazing life, the life the Spirit gives, when you look to Jesus on the cross and you say, man, he's the only one who can help me. He's the only one who can forgive what I've done. And and you begin to believe, as we'll talk about this morning, maybe, just maybe, there's somebody out there who can put my life back together. I see the brokenness, and I've, I've tried. My, my glue just isn't holding it together. But Jesus, I'm going to put my hope in Jesus. I'm going to trust in Jesus to put me back together, to make me right. That's what Paul is saying. It's a powerful thing to say. Now, he's, he's kind of reflecting on uh, this passage, again, it's a, it's a hall of, it really is a Hall of Fame passage in the Old Testament. He's looking back uh, kind of big picture to Exodus 32 to 33, 34. It's the story of the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God and the people get impatient and Aaron leads them to make a golden calf and worship a false god. It is really follows in the same way that Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden. It's Israel's fall narrative. It's their fall. It's Israel's fall choosing what is good in their own eyes. And so Moses, he comes down, and in chapter 34 is really where this all comes together now for Paul as he's reflecting. In chapter 34, Moses has asked to see the glory of God. You see this language of glory all through this. He asked to see the glory of God, and God is going then to reveal his goodness. That's what God chooses to do at the beginning of Exodus. If you never read Exodus 34, read it this afternoon. And we get this self-revelation from God's own lips, if you will. (laughs) The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I say Hall of Fame because that passage is the most quoted passage by the Old Testament authors in the rest of the Old Testament. (laughs) I mean, the, the, the people of Israel keep going back to the beginning of Exodus 34 to remind themselves to reflect on who God is. It's God's self-revelation. Now, one of the things that then Paul is drawing on is as Moses is in the presence of God, and this is something that you and I need to, I mean, understand. Moses is, is, is kind of glowing. <laughs> the, the, the glory of God, the character of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God is rubbing off on Moses, and it's visible, literally visible. But throughout the story of Israel up to this point in Exodus, the people are afraid of God. Happens at Mount Sinai. They draw, instead of drawing near, they draw away. <laughs> and of course, then they have this crazy, horrible fall in chapter 32 with the golden calf. 
So in order to allow, because God is constant, in order to allow, he's, he's pursuing us, to allow relationship to happen, this veil is provided. And the story of Moses is, is really teaching the bigger story of what's happening in Israel because God wants to dwell with his people. And God wants to dwell with you and me, but because of the sin and the rebellion of the people, their hard-heartedness, as Paul says, instead God has to dwell behind a veil in a tent. And so Moses' veil is kind of a, a symbolic teaching of this bigger issue. It's the hardness of hearts that's preventing us from getting close to this God who is life itself that we were created for. The issue really is the veil. The veil's there so the people can draw near, but the veil over Moses' face, the veil in the tabernacle or later in the temple, the way it's laid out is it's a sad necessity for the people. You and I should be sad that we have a veil that keeps us from seeing the glory of God. That's how the Old Testament story, that's, that's what's being, and what Paul is saying is, you read through the Gospels, when Christ Jesus dies, the veil is torn into, right? And so now we don't have anything. I mean, you just put your, you trust in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross, and now no veil is necessary. And we somehow, and we'll get into this as we keep going through the passage, we somehow have this opportunity to enter into the very presence, to see the glory of God. But how do we do that? So let's keep reading. Verse 16, whenever someone returns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So Paul is using the story to, to, to make this point, right? You turn to Jesus and now the veil's gone. It's no longer a necessity. We can draw right into the presence of God for the Lord is the spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is, again, this, this confidence, this boldness, this safety, this just step and nothing to hide. I know, I know I've done wrong, but, but now that I know God's heart for me through what Jesus did on the cross, I can just come right up to you. And I can be near and I can allow your forgiveness and your mercy and your healing to wash over me and make me whole again. I've been infected with this disease of sin and the good doctor is going to set my soul right, right? Good physician. Verse 18, so this is the first of my two Hall of Fame verses. So all of us who have had that veil removed, we've turned to Jesus. So the veil's been removed by God for us. Look at what he says. You and I, if we've turned to Jesus, we can now see and reflect the glory of the Lord. We can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, again, who is the Spirit, Paul, your apostleship is, is weak. Your ministry is weak. Paul says, that's fine. I follow a crucified Messiah, but the Spirit is strong. Look at what the Spirit of God does. The Lord, the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. For me, as a, first of all, as a human being, and then as a pastor, that verse just resonates in my heart because it means you and I can change. First of all, I look in the mirror and I know, and honestly, the older I get, unfortunately, the more broken I know I am. I just get more honest with myself about how mess. I stop pretending. I'm just a mess. I'm a mess. But then I read something like this, 
And, and there's something going on where if I spend time with Jesus, I can change. And I'm not just changing into any old thing that I dream up. No, no, no. This is my standard of beauty, and I'm becoming more and more like him. And then believe it or not, as a pastor, sometimes it's good for me to know that other people can change too. <laughs> people who are sincerely following Jesus, and I will say that's been true. I mean, if you're visiting Christ, we are not a perfect church. We are not. We do some things really well. We have a lot of areas to grow in. We have plenty to confess and repent of. But I will tell you one thing. I will tell you with all my heart, we love Jesus. <laughs> and in all of our mess, we are becoming more and more like him, both individually and I think collectively, which actually I think is a big part of Paul's heart. <laughs> but you can change. If you look in the mirror and you don't think you can change, memorize this verse. Look upon Jesus. Come more and more like him. And you need Jesus. It doesn't happen without Jesus. You can read all the self-help books you want. Good luck with that. And in, in five years when you're burned out and it didn't work, come back and we'll talk about Jesus. You need Jesus. You can change. But guess what? The people in your life around you that are driving you crazy, if you can learn to reflect the love of Jesus that he has given you, you may be a part of Christ Jesus changing their life because they can change too. If they don't know about Jesus, you might have to learn a little bit from our high school students and tell them. You can pray for opportunities. Tell them about Jesus and then show them there's another way, a beautiful way, a way that leads to life. That's, I love this verse. All right, chapter four. Let's, I've got to keep moving here. I'm going to just read through these verses relatively quickly. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, this new covenant, this new way that we don't need to bail anymore, we never give up. Why, why would we? And we're going we're gonna to unpack this more next week while he's talking about he never gives up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. I, I'd love to say more about that, but another day. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth about God and all who are honest know this. Again, he's defending his ministry. Verse 3, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Only the people who haven't turned to Christ. Once you turn to Christ, the veil's removed. Satan, who is the lowercase g God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. He has, we talked about this in our last series. The demonic in our world brings about a disorder of destruction. <laughs> And then the crafty satanic in our world comes to us with a false order that promises life but only delivers death. It comes with a, 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 a false light. It, it comes like as almost trying to present as an angel of light in the darkness, but it's just more darkness. It's a false order. It's not the real thing. Jesus Christ has come to rescue us and give us the real thing. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is, listen to this, the exact likeness of God. Jesus Christ is the exact likeness of God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what perfect theology is, I mean, you can look at statements of faith and creeds and so forth, but the best presentation of theology in all its perfection is the person of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just get to know Jesus and you'll know everything you need to know. Verse 5, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. I love this verse. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord 
and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. I mean, even there, if you were with us in our last series, it was a theme. We went through Babylon and and kind of the satanic ordering of the world all the way back to the Tower of Babel, right? Like we looked at the story in the Bible and one of the themes that I didn't expect to see but made a ton of sense, text after text on Babylon, and I said this over and over, you heard me, but in Babylon we're trying to win some game and in order to win we're being trained and taught to push others down in order to lift ourselves up. We do it on an individual level. We do it on a community level. Sometimes we do it on a national level. We're going to push other people down in order to lift ourselves up. It's the way of Babylon. And it came up again and again and again. And even here, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. I planted this church. And guess what? There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus, and I'm your servant. That's what Paul says. It is radically different. It is an upside-down kingdom. The rest of the world doesn't operate this way, but this is the way the kingdom works. And Paul will not budge. I'm not your Lord. He said a couple weeks ago, I'm not going to lord it over you and tell you what to do. I'm your servant. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus. And then our final verse, which is where we're going to sit for a few minutes It's another Hall of Fame verse for me. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness. I mean, it's the creator God. It's the one and only God. It's, but also speaking into the darkness of our world, let there be light. He has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen where? In the face of Jesus Christ. (laughs) How do you transform from glory to glory? How do you do this? You sit with Jesus. You stare into his face in the same way that you smile, I might smile. I laugh, you might laugh. Like, like it's the whole reason emojis were invented, right? Because there's something about human faces and interactions where we mimic and imitate one another. Well, Paul's saying, stare deep. And it's biographical for Paul. I actually think he's thinking to his conversion story, if you know his conversion story in the book of Acts. But it's biographical for me, too. I mean, not in the same way as Paul, but I, I've stared into the face of Jesus. And when, when I do so, because there's no veil, I can do it whenever I want. And I behold the glory of God. In the Old Testament, you couldn't stare into the face and live. You read, but in the New Testament, we find out what God has done in Jesus. You have to stare into the face of God to live. And you do this by staring into the face of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is like I said, just I want to do a little bit of extended prayer time. And I want to invite you to stare into the face of Jesus. I do this. I learned this at prayer school, and I do this. I don't, I'm going to give you like a bunch, like eight or nine different gospel stories. I don't do these all at once. I usually do one, maybe two. But I'm going to invite you to do this. And, and I will say, if, if you want, I think it's best done if you want to bow your heads and close your eyes. But you don't have to. I don't, Again, I'm your servant. I'm not your Lord. You don't have to do what I say, right? It's just, but I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and to practice in prayer one way. One way. It's not the only way. I mean, I think if you want, I mean, if, if I study the teachings of Jesus, go serve the poor and you'll stare into the face of Christ. I think Jesus says that himself, but But for this morning, we're here to gather together. I want you to to think of these different faces of Jesus. And maybe 
one of these will stick out to you and you just keep returning to it throughout the week and, and, and let it imitate it, mimic it, become like Jesus. The first is in Matthew chapter 8. There's a leper who sees Jesus, a leper, skin disease. And in that day, you're not just skin disease guy, you are ostracized. You are alone. You are an untouchable. In fact, if someone comes near, you have to say, unclean, don't touch me. And this leper sees Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I want you to stare into the face of Jesus. The Jesus who says to this leper, I am willing. This is why the new is so much better than the old. The, the Jesus who is not afraid of you. Not, there's nothing about you that, that makes Jesus want to draw back. There's nothing about your story or your body or your soul or your mind that is too sick for Jesus to touch. You need to hear that right now. And I want you to stare into the face of compassion. Who touches you and, 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 and not only cleanses your skin, but cleanses your soul. Sit with that Jesus for a while. Maybe there's people in your life that are gross and you keep a distance. And, but maybe sit with Jesus, the face of Jesus, in the face of the leper. And maybe some of that Jesus will rub off on you. From glory to glory. Or later in Matthew chapter 8, there's the face of the, the disciples see. There's a storm, and they're afraid, and Jesus is asleep, and they wake him up, and he stands up, and he looks around, and he says, silence! And the storm stops. Look into that face. I mean, you think what you're going through, no one can help you with. You're all alone. You're adrift at sea. Look into the face of the one who says one word and instantly there's peace. There's calm. Or later in Matthew 14, I love it, there's another storm on the lake and Jesus says to his disciples, don't be afraid, take courage, I am here. I mean, tap into your anxiety and your panic and all of your worry. What about this? What about that? Look into the face of Jesus who says, why are you afraid? Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. The face of serenity, of peace. How about John chapter 8? The face the woman saw when she was caught in adultery. Have you been caught red-handed? You know that you know that you're guilty. Look into the face of Jesus that says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. In the midst of a world of rage and hate, the, the woman was swimming in it. And Jesus steps into it and says, I don't condemn you. Look into that face. The glory of God on the face of Jesus. About Matthew chapter 17, the face Peter, James, and John see at the transfiguration, shining like the sun, infinite beauty. Again, you and I don't decide what God looks like. Jesus reveals who God is. Look into that face. Shining like the sun. Luke 23, the face the Roman centurion saw when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. The face of infinite forgiveness. The, the Roman centurion saw that face and said, surely this has to be the Son of God. Look into that face. 
A face that instead of building up vengeance and retaliation responds with forgiveness and mercy. Look into that face. And then, church, believe it. I know for many of you, you have no problem believing that Jesus will forgive other people's sins, but you don't believe he'll forgive yours. He will. You need to sit with Jesus and let him set you free. How about the face Mary sees Easter morning? The face of eternal life. The face that caused death to die. The face of new creation. She says, where have you laid his body to the gardener? And then he says her name, Mary, and she knows it's him. Jesus comes to you and he says your name. Look into the face that's caused death to die. Fill death with his life. Look into that face. And then think about it. If you don't have to be afraid of death anymore, what do you have to be afraid of? Look into that face. How about the face? Some of you are ready to do something. Look at the face of Jesus. You know, Peter and Andrew, James and John on the shore fishing, and Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Look into that face. He's inviting you into great purpose. He has work for you to do. The face at the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Look into that face. Jesus, in the midst of your meaninglessness and your boredom and your constant search for comfort and entertainment, No, turn away from that and look into the face of Jesus who says, take up your cross and follow me. Look into that face. What do you see? I think you'll see life. And finally, again, if you're, I guess it doesn't matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. But in Matthew 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Maybe that's where some of you start this morning. Maybe that's where you're at on your journey. Look into the face of Jesus. He's asking you. It's not a question you can avoid. You've made eye contact. You need, who do you say that I am? And answer that question. Look into his eyes of love and mercy and respond to Jesus. Let's do this throughout the week. The face of Jesus, lock onto it and see what happens. It's not an immediate fix, but time and time again, see what happens. Periods of weeks and months where... The mercy and love of God begins to rub off on you as the glory rubbed off on Moses and his face shined. But you don't need a veil anymore because of what Jesus has done. Spend time with Jesus and see who you become. He can change you. He can change the world. Amen?